Welcome to another episode of A Rock and Roll Rabbit Hole, where I'll be digging through my vinyl collection of about 500 records and my tiny brain of about 500 remaining brain cells and taking a light-hearted, laid-back, positive fanboy's look at my favourite songs and bits of songs and artists that fall within a different, pointless and set theme every episode. It really is just an attempt to archive some great YouTube content stories and some great songs for like-minded rock music fans. Choosing from any song part or artist that has given me joy as a listener or a slight Norwegian wood as a musician. It won't be a countdown, but I will leave my favourite choice for last. This is just a bit of chilled, unnecessary fun that hopefully inspires someone to buy music, listen to an old favourite album, support a musician and check out some of this amazing shit that has formed the soundtrack of my life. As a lot of people these days do like to share their opinions, please let me know if you think that I have missed anything in my record collection that I know and that I like by sending me an email at I won't ever check this email address at gofuckyourself.cockgoblin.com. That's cock spelt with a K. And I'll get back to you as soon as I give a shit. But seriously, if you do want to say hi, you can hit me on Instagram and Facebook, A Rock and Roll Rabbit Hole Podcast, or via the website, arockandrollrabbithole.com. The website also has Spotify playlists of all of the songs used in each episode, past episodes, and some other golden magic. I've also put some small playlists of the great, lesser-known artists that I feature at the end of each episode on the Victims tab of the website. Please subscribe to the podcast, share, rate, and review the podcast if you're digging it. That is super helpful and appreciated. Thanks again, and here goes. Thanks again for listening, or welcome, if this is your first time in my hole. And just a quick thank you to Rally Williams for a nice message, and also to Mark Eberdeen for some good music recommendations this week. I'll actually post some of Mark's amazing wood tattoo work that he does on St. Agnes, which is a small island off the coast of Cornwall in England. Talented little Kiwi boy. Last week, we covered great songs that have a title that isn't in the lyrics, and this week, I'll stay in title land and dig very deep and way too deep on songs that have brackets or parenthesis in the title. In American English. Parenthesis. Parenthesis. In British English, parenthesis, parenthesis. In Australian English, parenthesis, parenthesis. In Welsh English, parenthesis, parenthesis. And in this week's episode, brackets, episode 20. Rolling Stone's list of the 500 greatest songs of all time has 17 songs with brackets in the title. And my list has way more than that. It's a long episode, but it's got some great stories, a little bit too much choir hatred, and some rare choir love, and all the usual poop. It's a little bit confusing explaining where the brackets are in the title, so I'm just going to do it like this. For example, a song we featured in episode three's counting episode is John Lennon's Bracket, Just Like, Bracket, Starting Over. I'm going to start with two ridiculous examples of blatant bracket abuse. You can't be serious, man. You cannot be serious! First up is the Beastie Boys with their double bracketed classic, 
bracket, you gotta, bracket, fight for your right, bracket, to party, bracket. Next up is a stupidly titled song by The Kinks. Bracket, A, bracket, facing the crowd. Great song, stupid use of a bracket. I've got to stop faking it. I've got to start facing it. I'm going to take my final bow. Then I'm gonna take my place in the crowd I know I'll get used to it I've gotta stop acting like a clown up is a huge great 80s song that uses a bracket bracket pride bracket in the name of love and here's samuel l jackson introducing the band and the song a band from ireland was moved by dr king's message and his sacrifice and wrote a song to remember and honor him
Pride in the Name of Love was an extension of um, how Bono was seeing the world at the time. Obviously, being Irish young men, they were uh, aware of the troubles in Ireland and had written about about that. Sunday Bloody Sunday and New Year's Day, terrible things that happened in Ireland. And uh, Pride in the Name of Love was a continuation of his interest in uh, justice and equality. And he wanted to talk about that, as if to say, uh, Martin Luther King um, uh, was uh, was quite willing to sacrifice his life mm-hmm. for what he believed in, and uh, it was very touching to that young man at that time. Mm-hmm. Um, and he wanted to sing about it, mm-hmm. one more in the name of love. Right. Um, we uh, it took us a while to get that track. We we tried it in a castle. We tried it in a rehearsal room, and in the end, we got it at uh, a studio called Wind, Windmill Lane. And um, uh, I don't know if I was right about this or not, but Windmill Lane was a conventional studio, very nice place, but not very cavernous with its drum sound, let's say. You'd hit a drum in the room, and it wouldn't be that inspiring. And I, I invited the crew, the U2 crew, to build me concrete wall so they 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 built me a cement block wall behind the drums so we can get a little bit of punch happening so there's that's how extravagant uh (laughs) things got to (laughs) and in the end um we had a pretty good drum sound but could i could i say that the uh, the drum sound comes from the drummer himself so uh, bless his heart larry mullen delivered fantastic bump part on that which including da, 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 in the name so machine gun mullen there thank you Mary. that was u2 producer daniel lanois on here's bono in the studio passionately busting it out and feeling out the melody and some funny banter from behind the glass Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Fantastic. <laughs> Maybe a bit more passion this time, Bob. Yeah, I was a bit restrained, actually. Yeah. Uh, maybe you could try standing for this one. The only direction I might offer you is that the first chorus might be a little more restrained than the others. But um, I wouldn't like to inhibit what you're doing. You know, you can you can come. You can come to the microphone with finished words and a finished melody, and that's all you'll have when it's recorded, finished words and a finished melody. There was a nice verse in there, a new, a new melody.
There's a man there you know He's the host of the show And you'll find that he fucking hates choirs Let's move on. Next up, we have one of the most well-known rock songs ever that happens to have a bracketed title as well. A UK and US number one in 1965, and it was released less than a month after Keith Richards wrote the famous riff in a hotel, which is still standing and now owned by those super kooky Scientologists. I mean, Otis's version of Satisfaction, I'm right with you, pal, yeah. And, you know... What I was doing on that little fuzz box, I made that record and it was, it was supposed to still be like a dub, a demo. And we just finished making, I think it was Aftermath or whatever album. We went back on the road and 10 days later I'm hearing it on the radio and I'm in somewhere like Iowa. And then what I'm trying to say, I guess, is that that little line I did on the guitar, which has become so bloody famous, was really my sketch of what the horns should be doing, because my idea was to use horns, you know, and, but the record company and the, and the management slipped it out. They said, this is a hit, and so, and, hey, why talk to them? They're on the road. So, and I can't argue with that, you know, but at the same time, Otis interpreted it perfectly, you know. Just some background info, I actually recorded most of the 20 episodes so far during 2020's lockdown, before I released episode one on January 3. I've added to them and tweaked them and edited them as we have gone. And this bit you're listening to now was actually recorded on December 8, 2020, the 40th anniversary of John Lennon's murder. So I've been having a bit of a John Lennon-a-thon and a bit of a Beatles-a-thon. We have covered John's murder in episode 10, and a lot deeper in episode 13 and 14, and included his masterpiece bracketed song, Bracket Just Like Bracket Starting Over. And here's another one. December 1972, Happy Christmas War is Over, which will doubtless be played hundreds of times on British and maybe even American radio. Yeah, they do play it here, thank God. 
Well, they do play it in Britain as well, John. They play it an awful lot. Good. I'm, I'm as guilty as the next disc well, jockey. We're, we're mm. really proud of that, and we both sang together on that one, so we made it our... might have been our first pop, mm -hmm. you know, straight pop record together, and Phil That's was true. the producer. And it was a beautiful session, and the kids singing were beautiful. It was the Harlem Community Choir, was it? Yeah, it was a really nice, pleasant, pleasant thing. And uh, basically, I said to Phil, give me the backing you gave to George on uh, a thing that George wrote for Ronnie Spector, and it's slipped my mind now, which mm. is uh, try some, buy some. If you, if you want to do some comparison shopping and listen to the track, try some, buy some, that George made with Ronnie Spector or whatever, you'll hear the idea for the backing there, which is what we did. But as usual, we, mm. we messed it up. We were we recorded it a bit too late. We almost missed the Christmas market that year with that record. You we got to number four in Britain. What we wanted to do was have something besides White Christmas being played every Christmas, you know? <laughs> and uh, there's always a war, right? Yeah. There's always somebody getting shot. So every year you can play it and there's always somebody being tortured or shot somewhere. So it, the, the lyric stands in that respect. Mm -hmm. I always wanted to write something that would be a Christmas record that would last forever, you know? And maybe that's not the one. Maybe, maybe we'll. It. <laughs> well, I'd hope they reissue it forever. Mm. But uh, also, we did the poster event, which is also War Is Over If You Want It. You might be interested to know that every Christmas since you released that single, I've received a new copy every year, wherever I've been broadcasting. Oh, fantastic. I wish oh, they'd send beautiful. us one. I don't even have one. That's nice. My producer, Paul Williams, and myself have had a copy each this Christmas, as indeed we did last year and the year wow. before. But it comes around every great. year. Great. Isn't that great? Mm -hmm. That was, of course, John Lennon talking about Happy Christmas, bracket, war is over, bracket. So this is Christmas And what have you done Another year over And a new one just begun And so this is Christmas I hope you have fun The near and the dear ones The And while we're on John Lennon, his great bracketed song from Abbey Road is I Want You, bracket, She's So Heavy, bracket. And here's part of the demo of the song with Paul singing the vocals.
can remember being a kid and trying to learn these licks, and I've always loved the bit where at about three minutes 40, you can hear John Lennon changing pickups on his guitar. And I'll start with that part of the song so you can hear it. A great song with one of the greatest outros ever, a great vocal, a great bass line, and a great drum part that I missed in my bonus episode number four, which is a tribute to Ringo. I Want You, She's So Heavy by The Beatles. couldn't decide which Radiohead song with a bracket title to include, so I just went with two. The first one is the last track off my favourite Radiohead album, The Benz, Street Spirit, Bracket, Fade Out, Bracket. And here's a little bit of the darkness version of the song. Gotta love Justin Hawkins.
second of the Radiohead songs was actually written for Baz Luhrmann's film, Romeo and Juliet, and also features in the Black Mirror episode called Shut Up and Dance, which was so fucking good. Radiohead, with the business-like title of Exit Music, bracket for a film, bracket. Wake from your sleep We're drying up your tears Today we escape We escape Pack and get dressed before your father hears us. Before oh hell breaks a song, a song to keep us warm, there's such a chill, such a chill. A very special mention has to go out to Rival Sons. Their fourth album, called The Great Western Valkyrie, has 10 tracks on it. All 10 are bracketed golden nuggets, and all are post-title brackets. The album was the first album to feature their new bass player, Dave Best, and the song I've chosen is Electric Man, Take Me to the Sugar Shack, mainly because it has a great film clip. And here's the song. Take it to the promised land. 
Next up is an absolute Aussie classic. Here's the band talking about the song, the day they were at the airport on their way to moving to the UK in 1976. Mascot Airport uh, to say farewell to ACDC. First of all, over the last six months, it's sort of just gone like that, banging to the charts. Um, a lot of pop critics were su- surprised. What do you sort of, what do you think you owe your success to? There's uh, nothing to do with us at all. It's just our success is due to the taste of the public. Well, you've just lost me for work. <laughs> No, but I mean, it was a hard climb for a while, wasn't it? Yeah, we worked 80 bucks a night for a while, but Angus sort of, you know, put his, got his short drawn up a bit and sort of, like, hey, you know. So what's going to be released in, in, in the UK? It's a combination of the High Voltage and the TNT album. Together? Together. There's one album, There's one album yeah. called High Voltage. And have they chosen a single for that yet? Yeah, one way at the top. That's released today in England. Yeah? Yeah. Huh? Now, whose idea was it to put the bagpipes into, into a long way to the top? George. Sorry? George. George Young. Yeah. He just said, uh, you know, there's a, a big break in there. Uh, can you play bagpipes? Why he thought of bagpipes, I'll never know. You know? And I sort of played a bit of recorder before in fraternity and other bands, you know, sort of knew how to blow and finger, you know, so I just... <laughs> <laughs> what else can you yeah, say? Yeah. <laughs> so I, you know, played them. Huh? <laughs> and here's bass player Mark Evans talking about the session years later. It's a great idea. That's, and, and, and we recorded that that song uh, a long way to the top, and that was um, pretty much you know how we were recording. We, Malcolm, Malcolm was got this groove going, and and George said, oh, "Listen, you know, wait a minute, you know, got the tape going, and it would basically come out of a you know like a jam that we did, and." Uh, George, you know, overnight sort of worked on it and did a fair bit of editing because George is, you know, like amazing. You'd be in front of the, the tape machine, cutting bits out, and like a tailor around here and putting that back in there. And uh, he, he basically you know, did a did a job on that and, and put it together because you'll you'll note um, even with the guitar from the guitar intro to how the guitar is at the end, it's very 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 different. It, it flows, it works well, and it works well because of George, he's just, you know, that's where he's... So anyway, um, George suggested the need for something in their middle, he suggested bagpipes, and Bond said, great, yeah, I used to play in a pipe band. Oh, did that, fantastic. So Bond said, I'll be back. So we went down to a music shop down the road in Park Street, you know, bagpipes, they were us, I don't know what it was called. <laughs> and, uh, I went this set of hardy pipes. And we, I even remember they were $479, which was like back in those days, you know. Um, yeah, it got a, a normal Joe Schmoe was probably picking up 100 bucks a week. Mm. So, and a Fender Strat and a Gibson, those ball were like 300 Oh, yeah, well, yeah, well, yeah well, it was probably, probably, you would have got two Strats. Yeah. For, for the, so, yeah, so he's got this, this box. I've got the pipes. Okay. Now, if you want a good laugh, man, you get three Scotsmen together around trying to put a set of bagpipes together. <laughs> oh, man, it's like a Scottish Scottish Rubik's Cube. <laughs> and they're swearing and, oh, man. And they'd say, George said that to mine, said, listen, yeah, yeah, you should play in the pipe band, you know. Yeah, yeah. What's going on? He said, yeah, well, yeah, play the pipe band. 
I was a drummer. <laughs> so that was it. Oh, man. So we, we end up getting the pipes together. We end up getting the team. We recorded. We got the, got the, the drones. We ended up blowing those individually in a tape loop. And then one got the chanter because he used to play flute or, or recorder and stuff. Oh, and yes, it, I remember him in that fraternity. fraternity. Yeah, yeah. you're playing the recorder. So he, he, he got, got the notes out and... Um, we made a tape loop, and then at the start of it, there's a, you know, we hold on to the tape, let it go, so it was just... You know. So it's, it's all George, it's, it's George's stuff, you know. It came a bit of a hassle when we were working live, because we'd have to tune up to the, the drone. So Paul, our Ralph, the front of the house guy, if we had the cassette player, we'd backstage, tune up to the drone, out the front, put the drone, okay, hit the drone now for this, and bond it out the channel, oh man. So in essence, it, it sort of it cruelled us from playing the song much live. And, you know, from my memory, I, I would say um, we probably played this song live maybe 30 times most. And the band's never played it since then. So it's such a, it's, it's, it's such a, an odd thing. It's, it's, it's converse because it's such an iconic ACDC song. Like if you say to people, particularly in Australia, name an ACDC song, it's also a long way to the top. Yeah. But the band probably only, you know, I may be out a few times, but I would say 30 times would be the maximum we played it on stage. And the band's, I'm sure the band's never played it since. So You don't see it in the live DVD? Oh, I, I, I wouldn't, I wouldn't yeah. think so. So, um, yeah, so it's probably the most famous song of the band. In fact, I've heard a couple of bootlegs of it, uh, and we're playing it. It's almost like a Chuck Berry thing. It's really fast, and it's quite different from the recording. You know, but, uh, yeah. So that, that's that's strange. It's never really sort of been in the live set much at all. But but then you, it's there. You know, it's very Bond, isn't it? Yeah. ACDC, it's a long way to the top, bracket, if you want to rock and roll, bracket.
Here's a great 1988 coked up interview with James Brown where he sort of answers questions with his own song titles and some other hilarious nonsense. They call him the godfather of soul, Mr. Dynamite, and the hardest working man in showbiz. But very soon, he may be known as the defendant. Grammy-winning soul singer James Brown is about to embark on a South American tour, but it's this tour that prompted his latest brush with the law. Brown says that he and his wife had an argument because she wasn't going on the tour with him. Adrian Brown and South Carolina police say that in the argument, it resulted, as a matter of fact, in Brown assaulting his wife with a lead pipe and firing a gun at a car that she was in. These are charges that Brown denies. He was released yesterday on $15,000 bond. He joins us for, from Atlanta to discuss the charges, and we welcome you, James Brown. How did all of this trouble begin? Living in America. <laughs> Nothing wrong. Nothing wrong at all. You're not in any difficulty, but you're out on bond. No, I'm not. Have I'm all the charges been dropped? Yeah, I'm out on love. Oh, well, are you out on love or out of love? Which yeah, is it? Out on love. Alone from night to night, you find me. Now, James, this isn't the first time you and your wife have had a problem. Are the two of you going to be able to work this out? Let's talk about some music. You oh. want to talk about music and you don't want to talk about what happened? No, it's all over. Well, let's talk about your tour. When are you leaving? We're leaving tomorrow. And where are you going? Rio de, Rio de Janeiro and Sao Paulo, Brazil. Now, your, your fans will have read all about this, James. Aren't you concerned about that? No, I'm, I'm concerned because there's nothing wrong. And what are you going to say to your fans when they ask you some questions about it? I'm going to say I feel good. Papa's got a brand new bag. It's a man's world. Well, that's the second time we've heard that in two days. That's very interesting. Now, don't leave us, James. You stay right there. I'm we have more that we have something. to talk about. Well, tell us a little bit about what you're going to be Hello, doing Dad. on this tour. Uh, what's that? What are you going to be doing on this tour? I'm going to be doing you... Papa's Got a Brand New Bag and Living in America. Sex Machine, get up off of that thing. I feel good. Jam. Now, I understand that you I'm have real. already... James, I have to ask you one serious question here. I understand you already have started divorce proceedings. Does that mean that you're now eligible? I'm not. I'm, yes, I'm eligible. I'm singing. I, I want to mingle. You want to mingle? Yeah. Now, the women love you when you get out there. Why do you think that is? What did you say? The women love you when you get out there. Why is that, ladies? Well, I'm asking you. Huh? Because I look good. do you think good. that is? You I look good. I smell good. I yes. feel good. And you sing good. And make love good. Oh. Well, there we are. We don't have to ask anybody else. We got that from the source. <laughs> there you are. Wow! I feel good. James Brown, I got you, bracket, I feel good, bracket. I feel good. I knew that I would not. Sugar and spine. I feel nice. Sugar and spine. So nice. So nice. I got you. When I hold you in my arms, I know that I 
another great Rolling Stones song from 1974 that has David Bowie on backing vocals and Ronnie Wood on guitar who had yet to join the Stones. Ronnie actually wrote big parts of the song, but the songwriting was credited to Mick and Keith. The Rolling Stones, it's only rock and roll, bracket, but I like it, bracket. living in Holland Park, uh, I've just realised that um, I've done a full circle because I used to live there with Jimi Hendrix. We uh, had a flat for a few weeks along with Pat Arnold, um, not far from Holland Park tube station. And um, it was really funny. I was walking along there the other day with all the lovely shops they got along there, beautiful greengrocers, beautiful butchers, all of which I never realised when me and Jimmy shared a flat together and we got slung out and he gave me his dog and all that. So... Um, a lovely man to hang with uh, on the few times that we did have uh, a couple of evenings together. he just sit on the bed, very stoned away. He'd swap guitar from left to right hand and he could play equally well both ways. And that was kind of annoying to see, but it was mind-blowing as well at the same time. And... Um, he was a very introvert person. He never liked his own voice. And I used to say, but don't worry about your voice, Jimmy, because your guitar playing more than makes up for that, I think. And the last time I saw him, he had uh, his arm around a girl, leaving Ronnie Scott's. And I said to him, hey, Jimmy, say goodnight. And he carried on walking down the slope. And I went, Jimmy, say goodnight. And he turned around and he said, goodnight. And that was the last episode of it. <laughs> and that was the great man, Ronnie Wood, talking about our next bracketed songwriter, Jimi Hendrix. And here's the engineer talking about the next song. And this track was created, uh, I think the way Jimmy conceived of it was, look, I want to jam, but 
I want to, I know the guys, I know the guys I want to play this. And fortunately for, for us at the record plant, we're on 44th and 8th. The scene's two blocks up 8th Avenue. And Jimmy goes into the scene one night and when you know it, Steve Winwood's there, Jack Cassidy's there, and Jimmy's listening saying, yeah, I, I think I can get these guys to play this track. Because he really had, had a preconceived notion of what he wanted. He knew, once again, Jimmy's vision was very clear. I want this jam, but it's got to be done a very specific way. So much in the, in the studios was done with either just Jimmy and myself, or Jimmy, myself, and we bring in some other people. If Jimmy could have picked a band, to have, this would have been a band to have, because he loved Steve Wimber, and he often said, geez, I'd love to have Steve Wimber in my band. And here he is playing, I mean, Steve's organ playing is absolutely sensational. I mean, he, he is so much in the head of Jimi Hendrix in the sense that the, those two guys complemented each other. When they play off of each other, it's just a magnificent thing. Voodoo Child, bracket, slight return, bracket, by Jimi Hendrix. Another rockin' Aussie tune. This band is Powderfinger with Bracket, Baby I've Got You, Bracket, On My Mind.
Just a quick side rabbit hole on the Powderfinger tune. I think it was a tip of the hat to David Bowie's Suffragette City. Here's the Powderfinger intro riff. And here's Bowie's Suffragette City. A couple more 80s tunes. This first one is titled, I Ran So Far Away. And here's Samuel L. Jackson again introducing the band. A couple of 80s tunes. This one is titled, I Ran, brackets So Far Away. And I pretty much added it so I could have Samuel L. Jackson introduce the band again. You, Flock Seagulls, you know why we're here? Why don't you tell my man Vince here where you got the shit here at? I walk along the avenue. I never thought I'd meet a girl like you. Meet a girl like you. With open hair and stormy eyes. The kind of eyes that hypnotize me through. Hypnotize me through. And I ran. I ran so far away. I just ran. I ran all night I couldn't get away. Here's song legend David Stewart talking about writing this next classic. You see, we lived together for about four or five years as a couple, and we didn't write one song. Between us, together, we made three albums as the tourist. Pete Coombs wrote all the songs. Then we broke up, decided to be a duo, and wrote 140 songs about it. I'll show you one of the things we did there, which is probably you'll all have heard, um, but you won't realize how we made it. But Corder really believed in us, and he gave us the sort of hope, really, to sort of carry on. Because I remember we made Love as a Stranger, Sweet Dreams, all these tracks. But it wasn't like nowadays where, you know, it's like, yeah, at the EDM festival, Sweet Dreams. It was just like, what the hell is that? You know, for the period, because we'd had punk music. And Annie and I loved the Sex Pistols, The Clash, X-Ray Specs, everybody. But you couldn't really be a band after that with guitars just singing normal songs. And we definitely weren't new romantics. So we were like, what are we? And I, and I had this sort of feeling of this electronic music influenced by sort of German electronics, Kraftwerk and Daft, Deutsche American Friendship. I had met Connie Plank, who'd become a kind of mentor, with Annie's soulful voice on top. So this track, which you all will know. Now, you can imagine we had like, I don't know if you know about recording, but we had a Clark Technic cheap reverb. We had a Bell noise reduction, a TAC 8-track, a Soundcraft cheap desk with 16 channels, and this weird drum machine that me and a friend of ours, Adam Williams, who helped teach me how to operate it, went and had to sleep on this guy's floor in Dorset or somewhere while he built it. <laughs> so the outside of it was wood. You might have seen it in the Sweet Dreams video. So it like a wooden computer. It was a bit weird. Anyway, <laughs> so we're trying to make this thing on this equipment, but like there's lots of things people don't realize. Okay, I'll just play some separate sections because, um, for instance, uh, 
try to play it, they don't realize it's actually two sequences, one doing that, and then the other one's doing that. But one without the other is weird, you know, so... to stop clang there was something back to front that was driving me mad it was this okay he kept doing that on the one instead of the two and i was like for fuck's sake and then after a while i was like hey that's pretty good so like <laughs> <laughs> so then we wanted to make this sound in the middle but we didn't have anything to do it so this next bit's me and annie playing milk bottles with sticks <laughs> this, Anyway, it just shows you with a small, like, a necessity of some other invention. Is that it? That's the one, isn't it? Yeah. Yeah. Like, we had, didn't hardly have anything, so we had to just make sure that every single thing was exactly the right thing. And that was the beginning, really, because what happened was it came out and a Cleveland radio station, I think it was, started to play it on import. And they kept ringing up the label in America going... Look, there's this band called Earth Mix, and every time I play it, <laughs> every time I play it, um, this song, Sweet Dreams, the phones light up, and they go, and we have never heard of them. We don't know what you're talking about. And in the end, they realized that's because we were signed in England. And I don't know how long it was since then, Corda might know, but we went from literally obscurity to being number one in America. And then we re-released Love is a Stranger here, and then it was from then on for about nine years solid. If you think about it, we made eight albums in eight years. So, and, and wrote all the songs and recorded them in about three or four weeks. The Eurythmics, Sweet Dreams, brackets are made of this, brackets. Sweet dreams are made of these, who am I?
let's move on. Ouch, that one was painful. Oh, wow. We come to this song. I don't know if I can tell this or not, so maybe, I don't know, I may have to tell a different story, but... The song actually started out as another song. Uh, and since we are, I guess, storytellers and you want to know the, the real dirt behind the songs, uh, I don't know, this is about as, as dirty as it gets. Not dirty, but as deep as it goes for me. Uh, when I was younger, my grandmother uh, got cancer. And by the time they had found it and discovered it, it was much too late. And uh, instead of sitting in some hospital room, she wanted to go home and be home. And uh, my mother and my aunts and their husbands and like uh, went to set with her at home. And um, as of you know, a few months passed and the cancer had spread and uh, it, you know, eating up most of her body and all of her hope and uh, it was a bad time. And uh, one particular day was a really bad day for her. And uh, my mother was sitting with her that evening. And she turned to my mom and my grandmother said, how do you die? And um, it crushed my mom and it's still pretty crushing for me. Uh, so in order to deal with that, I wrote this song um, called Hemorrhage, which I think only maybe one other person in the world has ever heard because it's too personal for me. Um, then as this record is being put together, um, the song was there, but I had to adapt it because obviously I think that's a little too heavy for, it's something maybe, you know, too heavy a topic to be on pop radio or something like that. And uh, so I changed the song quite a bit uh, and adapted it to just a, a relationship. This is hemorrhage. That's why the title is there. Fuel with hemorrhage, bracket in my hands, bracket. Memories are just where you lay down Drag the waters till the depths give up their dead What did you expect to find? Was it something you left behind? Don't you remember anything I said when I said
exciting start to any show. The Buzzcocks. And have you ever fallen in love Bracket. with somebody that you shouldn't have? Bracket. it was the first little thing I wrote where I lyrically expressed the idea that you could make a build a wall out of a number of different bricks that when they fitted together provided something impermeable you know and so this was just one of them when you hit puberty and start getting snotty you, you, you it's good to have an adult around who will say well hang on let's talk about that rather than be quiet is that how you experienced yeah, it? Yeah, I experienced it. It's be quiet. Nobody's interested in what you think. Shut up. You're here to learn, you know. And But I think that's... I think... I don't know how much that's true now. I think kids these days, hopefully, um, have more of a voice. I thought whether or not I had another big tour in me, and uh, uh, it was my wife, Laurie, in fact, said to me, well, if you do go out again, you have to do the wall. And I went, nah. That's too bad, you know. No, no, that's too... Big. And, and, but then I started thinking about it and thinking, and then I started thinking, could we? Is it possible? Having decided that I, physically I could do it, I then realised that emotionally and intellectually it was of no interest to me unless I made it less about pink and more about to try and address some fundamental universal philosophical and political issues. So that's why the show is very different than it was in 1979. In those days, the archetypal fear was still that nuclear war thing. Now, I don't think it's too much of a stretch to start wondering if uh, the veneer of democracy that we spread thinly over what we call freedom uh, may be a very thin veneer indeed, and that the amount of... Uh, um, influence that we the people actually have on what happens um, can be remarkably thin. It's a bit like uh, Obama, you know, to sit in a room with two or three other people and decide who lives and who dies in foreign countries with no recourse to evidence or law or, or anything at all. And then somebody, some, some you know, a uh, USAF officer um, sits playing a video game in Idaho and kills him. And probably a few, you know, maybe 50 other people as well. But the fact that the President of the United States thinks it's OK to sit in a fucking Oval Office and decide who should live and who should die in the Yemen is insane. And yet nobody... You know, it's just like we're all Stepford wives. We all go, and we go about our business and nobody says anything about it perpetual warfare for no reason except to make money. They make no sense at all. None. You're just throwing away young men's lives in some foreign country. That was Roger Waters from Pink Floyd talking about his wall tour, the album The Wall, 
and his bracket titled Great and Correct Use of a Choir. Drop D based, first single of, in 11 years, number 34 on Rolling Stones, 500 Greatest Songs of All Time, Grammy nominated, US and UK number one, 4 million selling magic of another brick in the wall, bracket, part two, bracket. Because you can doesn't mean you have to. There are hit sing-along songs about love, songs about peace, hit songs about heartache, heartbreak and making up again. But Steve Harley's big, cheerful-sounding number one hit has an unexpected message. You've done it all. You've broken every code. It's about the thundering great row that broke up his band. I've kept most of this to myself because I, I don't want to spoil it for people. You start the game. It's uh, a finger-pointing piece of vengeful poetry. It's, it's getting off my chest how I felt about uh, guys splitting up a perfectly workable machine. The machine was a band called Cockney Rebel, the result of a long-term ambition by its founder, who'd been busking around London before putting a band together from the small ads. EMI signed us to make three albums. It was very, very exciting. I was recording those songs that I'd been busking in Hyde Park and Piccadilly and Leicester Square for a year. But the band's success relied on Steve as the only songwriter, and he reaped the financial rewards. Three of them came to me in a little posse with um, several ultimatums, you know. They wanted to write songs for the, for, for the third Cockney Rebel album, and I said... Well, you know, I started the band and I auditioned you and I told you the deal at the time. I'm not, not moving the goalposts here. It was, I'm writing these songs and it'll take three albums or so. I, they knew this. And they came to me demanding that they could write songs too. And I just said, well, go and do it then. There's nothing left. Shortly after, Steve wrote Make Me Smile about the confrontation with his former bandmates and he performed it with a new lineup. What did you mean by the lyrics? Bracket. Come up and see me. Bracket. Make me smile. That you will come back. They walked out on me and I wrote it saying, look, you, you, you know, you'll learn how well we're doing here. We're doing well. Why are you doing this? Did but you that hope that they would come back? No, it was bitchy. I was being bitchy and it wasn't nice. I'm not proud of it. Of course I am. You've done it all. You've broken every code. 
on this side. David Geffen said, nah, man, that's, no, that's not cool. So I didn't show that side of me that night. <laughs> but there were a couple scenes where I went from here with a big titty to over here, you know, with a guy in the mustache. It wasn't masculine enough. It didn't work, okay? It didn't read, you know, reading back. So we just left that and the stuff, steam coming out of my mouth and stuff. So, I mean, uh, you know, we squoze it for all it was worth, and, and I think it's funny. I think it really works well without pointing pictures at this group and that group that that perhaps looks like a lady. Mm. No, I love it. Because you do, baby. Oh, yeah, you do. <laughs> right. So I found a way of fitting into bands, almost as a fourth or sixth member. Interesting. Um, because of my success with Bon Jovi, uh, John Claudner, the, the famous John Claudner, John Claudner, um, the legendary A&R man, um, you know, asked me if I would go up to Boston and meet Aerosmith. Uh -huh. um, and, you know, I got there. They had never written with an outside writer, and they were not happy to see me. Really? But in, they were, you know, very, you know, in, you know, kind of 
uh, going along with it right. to please to please the you know John sure. uh, Claudner, but they were they were not that happy about it. And you know Stephen was much more friendly, you know, was friendlier as he is, and uh, you know was very generous really, and showed me a song that they had started called Cruising for the Ladies. Oh, and. Um, I listened to that uh, lyric and I said, you know what, that's a very boring title. And they looked at me like, how dare you? Uh-huh. And um, and then Stephen volunteered uh, sheepishly um, and said that when he first wrote the melody, he started, he was singing, Dude Looks Like a Lady. <laughs> it, it, it was kind of a tongue twister that sounded more like scatting. And he got the idea because they had gone to a bar and had seen uh, a girl at the end of the bar, you know, with big, you know, ginormous rock blonde hair. And uh, the girl turned around and ended up being Vince Neil. Oh, no, really? Yeah. So then they started making fun of him and started saying, that dude looks like a lady, dude looks like a lady, dude looks like a lady. <laughs> so that's, that's, that's how that was born. That's the true story of how that was born. Speaking of Motley Crue, their 1989 album Dr. Feelgood has three bracketed song titles, TNT, bracket, Terror in Tinseltown, bracket, Same Old Situation, bracket, SOS, bracket, and a song title that I think was lifted from the movie Heartbreak Ridge. Block your ears if letters put together in specific orders offend you. Why don't you take your ass back to that faggot first platoon of yours and uh, don't go away, man. Just, uh, just go away. Amen. 
Steve Cropper and Ronnie Wood. We're very fortunate at Stacks to play behind many, many artists, uh, and those including uh, probably the greatest that'll ever live is Otis Redding, uh, that ever will be, and the great Wilson Pickett, we played behind him. And of course, we started out with uh, Rufus and Carla Thomas, uh, William Bell onto Eddie Floyd, people like that. And uh, it's just been a great career. And fortunately, because of that, it led me into years later uh, doing a lot of sessions in California and playing with some of the greatest artists that have ever lived on this planet. So I'm a very, very lucky and fortunate guy. And I'm fortunate today to be here with my good buddy, Ron Wood. And I can't let any time go by without telling everybody that Steve here wrote um, sitting on the dock of the bay with Otis Redding. Tell us about that. Well, I'll try to make it quick. And uh, Otis... Uh, make it as long as you want. Well, okay. When uh, when Otis came to town, he would go check into the, to the Holiday Inn somewhere, wherever he was going to stay. And then he'd call me from there, and I'd go down and write with him. And that's the way we did it. And we'd write probably all night sometimes and go to the studio the next day and cut what we wrote. On this particular occasion, I get a phone call from Otis, and he's at the airport. And he said, I just wanted to check to make sure you were at the studio because I'm coming straight down. And I said, okay. So he comes down and he, and he comes running in the studio and he said, crop, he said, get your guitar, get your guitar. I got a hit, I got a hit. And I said, what do you got? <laughs> and he started playing, uh, you know, he was tuned to a chord and he started playing, you know, just like. And he said, uh, sitting in the morning sun, I'll be sitting t- when the evening comes, watching the ships come in, and I'll watch them roll away again. Uh, that's he was lovely. talking about the ferries. Because he wrote, he wrote the song, or started it, in Bill Graham's boathouse in Sausalito. Well, I remember the fish and chip bar on that. <laughs> and the, the rest top. of it, I helped him write, I wrote about him. I left yeah. my home in Georgia and those things. Cool. So you want to hear a little part of it? Yeah. And I come up with this. You know, by the way, Otis never heard the electric guitar. I played the acoustic guitar on the track. And then I overdubbed that weekend. On a Friday evening, I overdubbed the guitar licks, which I was going to play him on Monday, but he never got back to play it for me to play it for him. Well, so. I didn't realize it was that close to him. It passing. was that close, wow. absolutely. So it went like this. Which Duck picked up on the bass line. Yeah. Sitting in the morning sun I'll be sitting when the evening comes Watching the ships roll in And then I'll watch them roll away again I'm just sitting on the dock of the bay Watching the tide 
the dark of the bay, wasting time. I left my home in Georgia and I headed for the Frisco Bay. Cause I've got nothing to live for. Look like nothing's gonna come my way So I'm just gonna sit on the dock of the bay Watching the tide roll away I'm sitting on the dock of the bay Wasting time Look like nothing's gonna change Everything seems to stay the same I can't do what ten people tell me to do So I guess I'll remain the same The great body jar song with an unnecessary bracket title is the super necessary five minutes away and the not required in brackets when punks attack magicians. The bridge of this song has one of my favourite melodies of all time. Over the years, I've done some body jar gigs filling in on bass, and never once have we played this song because they're flogs. Was it your idea to do that uh, the staccato vocal thing, the, you know, heart attack, heck, 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 was that your... Yeah, I actually wanted um, an echo uh, machine to do that instead of me doing it. And I was trying to explain to Phil, I said, hey, what could do, I can give you a heart attack? And I just saying to Phil, and it should go, heck, 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 heck. And, and he goes, why don't you just do it? Because it's going to take, you know, four hours for us to get the exact kind of the sequencing on it. So I did. 
And I, you know, I, this is things like this happen, like the whistling, uh, staying in as the stranger theme, the ack, 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 trying to explain what I was looking for. And Phil said, you just did it. So that's how that happened. That was, of course, Billy Joel talking about his classic Moving Out, Anthony's song. And here's a demo where we can actually hear Billy scatting the lyric and him visualising the delayed vocal he was talking about. I'm moving out. Billy Joel's rhythm section on these 70 songs is so good. Moving out, bracket, Anthony's song, bracket. Anthony works in the grocery store, saving his pennies for someday. Mama Leone left a note on the door, she said, Sonny, move out to the country. Is that all you get for your money? And it seems such a waste of time If that's what it's all about Mama, if that's moving up Then I'm moving out The next choice was heavily influenced by a track we heard in episode 15's Black and Blue songs, and that was Bob Dylan's Subterranean Homesick Blues. It was also influenced by a song this same band had already demoed two years earlier called Bad Day or Public Service Announcement. And here's a bit of that demo. Here's the final product, REM, it's the end of the world as we know it, bracket, and I feel fine, bracket. That's great, it starts with an earthquake, birds and snakes and aeroplane, Lenny Bruce is not afraid. I have a hurricane, listen to yourself, churn world, serve its own needs, dummy serve your own needs, beat it up an ox, speak grunt, no strength, the ladder starts to clatter with fear, fight down, high wire in a fire, rivers in a seven games. For hire at a combat site Left to us are coming in a hurry With the furies breathing down your neck Team my team reporters Baffle Trump, Tether Crop Look at that, no plane, fine, then Uh-oh, overflow, population Common food, but it'll do Save yourself, serve yourself World serves its own needs Listen to your heart bleed Dummy with the rapture And the reverend and the right, right You patriotic, patriotic Slam, fight, bright, light Feeling pretty sight It's the end of the world As we know it It's the of the world as we know it. It's the end of the world as we know it. 
control room to hear how it sounded. And uh, it was really sloppy. It was a very bad take. It sounded terrible. And I turned to the musicians I was working with, and I said, gee, I know we can do better than that. And I looked, and the drummer was unconscious. <laughs> I'm not kidding. From apparently having so much fun doing that first take. Or some fun he had on the way to the studio that day. And I was stuck with this track. They went all over the place. It changed keys. It had different bridges. And I had nothing. And I had to come up with a tune that would be a kind of up-tempo tune for the, for the album. So I did something that's very common nowadays, but was like unheard of back then. I found 16 bars of that first take that were tight, that felt good. And I duped it, those 16 bars onto another machine, and we edited those 16 bars together until we had four minutes of the same bloody 16 bars. <laughs> and then I thought I'm gonna have to write a new song to fit this existing track, this is true. And, um, and I knew it would have to be a story song because the song itself was the same 16 bars over and over again. So I finally wrote a lyric. I wrote about 15 attempts at it. I went with, uh, that's the law of the jungle in the school of the street. And I said, it's now warmed up, warmed over Billy Joel. And, uh, and so finally I wrote a song and it went, if you like Humphrey Bogart and getting caught in the rain. And on the way to the session to do the vocal, I, said, I was about to sing the scratch vocal, the reference vocal on the tune. And I thought, you know, I've done so many movie references if you like Humphrey Bogart. That's not good. The people in the song, they want an escape. They want an escape. They, 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 it's when you go on vacation to the islands, you never order a Budweiser. You, you order a, a, a drink with a, 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 a parasol and a, and, a, and a flag of all nations. And, uh, and if it's blue, that's really good. My Thai, Daiquiri, Pina Colada. If you like Humphrey Bogart, if you like Pina Coladas. So I did that. I said that phrase. And my record label came to me and said, Rupert, you know, you call the song Escape, but the world is calling it the Pina Colada song. So could we just call it Escape, parenthesis, the Pina Colada song? They said, I said, compromise my artistic integrity. <laughs> That was Rupert Holmes talking about his cheese-covered classic, Escape, Bracket, the Pina Colada song, Bracket. Added here for Simon, the Ivanhoe Cackler Fissenden. Check out the Golden Magic tab for the great film clip to the song, where Rupert looks like a cross between a science teacher, a serial killer, and Graham Garden from The Goodies. I was tired of my lady We'd been together too long like a worn-out recording of a favorite song. So while she lay there sleeping, I read the paper in bed. And in the personal columns, there was this letter I read. If you like pina coladas and getting caught in the rain, if you're not to me. 
I read somewhere once that uh, Michael Jackson's Billie Jean, uh, he came up to you guys and said that he was actually inspired by the baseline of I Can't Go For That. I, wa- I was wondering, it's a two-part question, I was wondering if, if that's true, if there's a little story behind that, and then also just in general how you guys feel about uh, people sampling the crap out of No Can Do, and, and <laughs> I think that's probably the most sampled songs you guys have, and just yeah. in general what you're feeling about that is. Well, it is true, the first part is true. I, I, we were doing the We Are The World session, uh, everybody was talking to everybody else because there was, there was just the artists in the, in the rooms. And Michael came up to me, as, you know, in conversation, and he goes, "Hey, man, I hope you don't mind if I stole, st- you know, st- stole no can do." <laughs> and I and I went, "What do you mean you stole no can do?" He says, "Nah, man, I used it for Billy Jean." And I said, hey, "Does it sound like no can do to me?" I was going to say, I mean, I've heard Billy Jean a million times. I wouldn't have thought that. Well, that was in his head because he, he it was it inspired him. So yeah. he was the kind of guy. He he said that to me. I thought that was pretty cool that he said that, but I. To me, I mean, that's that just goes to show you, though. An artist can take something that even they may think is a, is a, you know a, a ripoff or whatever you want to call it, but right. it's not at all. Right. You know, I mean, it was it, it, maybe in the slate if you really wanted to stretch it a little bit, you could hear the two things together. But anyway, he did say it. <laughs> no, that's pretty neat. As opposed to like when Robin Thicke makes blurred lines and it sounds exactly like uh, Marvin Gaye. Yeah, it sounds exactly. Exactly. Like- that's a whole different thing. That was the very excellent Daryl Hall from Hall & Oates talking about his classic, I Can't Go For That, bracket, no can do, bracket. couple of Aussie tunes just to finish up. Next up is um, which, uh, for those of you who haven't heard of Peshabolka, it's, um, it was the name of a, a ship. I can't remember what country the ship originated from, somewhere in Europe, maybe Norwegian, I don't know. But um, it's uh, during a big storm um, off the coast of Newcastle that uh, ran aground on Nobby's Beach, which is a popular surf beach. Castle and, um, and yeah, this, this this huge huge tanker ran aground right on the on, on the beach, and it was, it was sort of news all over Australia. There were photos everywhere on the internet and newspapers and stuff. And it kind of was, you know quite famous for a while. I think the Nova Castrians were sort of quite proud of it. The enormity of this, this hulking tanker, you know, just so close to the to the shore, you know, sitting on this sandbank. Um, and yeah, so I guess I kind of stole it as a as a metaphor um, for uh, feeling like I'd perhaps run aground a little bit myself. But, but I was kind of imagining, you know, a person, you know, who was feeling lost and you know confused, sort of going down to the beach and 
discovering this massive big, big ship in the water and sort of feeling a connection to it. Um, and sort of standing at the shore of a beach and contemplating whether to just walk into the water and disappear forever or not. Yeah, I mean, I, I just really like it. It's, I guess it's probably an example of one of the more kind of rockier songs on the record and I, I suppose I was you know, writing a lot more kind of up-tempo, upbeat songs. So a bit more of the backstory on the Pasha Bolka. It was a Danish-owned ship built in 2006. And on the 28th of June 2007 was in Australian waters and the Newcastle Port Corporation radioed the 56 ships in their water to move out to sea as a huge storm was approaching. 45 of the ships moved as instructed. 11 did not, including the Pasha Bolka, which ended up being washed onto the beach. Newcastle, incidentally, is the beach town where Silverchair come from. Anyway, the best bit of the story is some Aussie legend actually put the ship on eBay and bids got to $16 million before eBay, who clearly don't have a corporate sense of humour, stopped the auction. Greenpeace also cleverly used the hull of the ship as a billboard to use lasers to project environmental slogans. That's right. Frickin' laser beam! And here's a song by Bob Evans, Pasha Bolka, bracket, where did I go wrong, bracket. Took my worries to the water's edge To drown them peacefully Saw my reflection on the horizon A stranded ship like me Talking of beaches in New South Wales, we'll finish up with a great bracketed 80s song featuring a gorgeous guitar solo from the super underrated Simon Binks. And here's Australian crawl singer James Rain with a giveaway and introducing Reckless Bracket Don't Be So Bracket. Hi, I'm James Rain and Video Hits and myself are giving you the opportunity to win one of these great Sanyo CD Walkmans. We have one for each state and all you have to do is call the number now on your screen and stay watching Video Hits. Coming up now, a blast from the past. This is Reckless.
So that's the last of the bracketed song titles before I get to my favourite, but I did want to include a funny, crazy or interesting story in each episode about one of the songs or artists, and today's story is about John Lennon. This is a story that I wanted to pop in episode four's Drugs about John's first LSD trip. Uh, a dentist in London laid it on George, me and our wives without telling us at a dinner party at his house. He was a friend of George's and our dentist at the time. And he just put it in our coffee or something, yeah. He was saying, I advise you not to leave. And we thought he was all trying to keep us for an orgy in his house and we didn't want to know, you know. I mean, we did, it was insane going around London on it. And, we thought when we went to the club, we thought it was on fire. And we were cackling in the street and then, you know, people were shout, shouting, let's break a window, you know, we were just insane. I mean, we just had our heads and finally got, we got in the lift and we all thought there was a fire in the lift. It was just a little red light and we were all screaming like that. We got, and the lift stops and the door opens and we all go, ah! And we just see that it's the club and then we walk in, you know, sit down and, and the table's elongated. It was only a table like this with four of us, but it went this long. And then some singer came to me and said, can I sit next to you? And I go, only if you don't talk! Because you know, like, <laughs> I just couldn't think. And then George, somehow or another, managed to drive us home in his Mini, but we were going about 10 miles an hour, it seemed like a thousand. And uh, I was getting all this sort of hysterical jokes coming out, like a speed, because I was always on that. Too. Like, oh, you know, and George would go, <laughs> and, you know, God, it was just terrifying, you know? but it was fantastic. And then George's house seemed to be like a big submarine. I was driving it. They all went to bed. I was carrying on. And they all, it seemed to float above his wall, which was 18 foot. You know, I had to like driving. <laughs> and uh, that's how it happened. Let's take a short break and quickly recap some of the magic before I get to my favourite bracketed song title shortly. My favourite bracketed song is another John Lennon penned classic. I have had a John Lennon and Beatles week to commemorate the 40 years since John Lennon's murder. This song was the first pop song to ever feature sitar and John wrote it about an affair he had had but didn't want his wife to know so he kind of made the lyrics a little cryptic. Part of the title is named after a cheap, fake kind of furniture wood. So my choice for this week is the Beatles with Norwegian wood, bracket, this bird has flown, bracket. Should I say she once had me? She showed me her room. Isn't it good? No, we 
And here's a little bit of a demo version, which is a lot more psychedelic and heavy. I once had a girl, or should I say, she once had me. She showed me her room, isn't it good, Norwegian wood. She asked me to stay and she told me to sit anywhere. Just completing my Norwegian wood rabbit hole and amplifying my choir hatred, here's 30 seconds too much of a choir ruining this classic. That's enough. Thanks, guys. I'm going to break with my normal format here to include another story about a bracketed song, and that song is Anna's song, Open Fire by Silverchair. A song I could have easily put in episode two, Girls' Songs. Here's singer Daniel Johns and then the producer, Nick Launay, talking about the song. Why is this such a personal thing for you? Um, it was just about a stage that I was going through. I wasn't eating. As a result, got very sick. Are you better now? Yeah, I'm getting better. When I stopped eating was on on our second album. Just as a, it felt like everything was so out of control around me, that, and it's kind of weird. I'd because I'd never have guessed that I would be someone that would have that as be part of my life, you know what I mean? I found it quite confusing, but I noticed myself starting to play games with myself and say, see how little I could get by on. And the, re the reason I think was just to gain control and also because I had a theory because I was being beaten up a lot by people outside of school. Um, I, it was almost like if I could make myself look sick enough, so I'd take sympathy on me. and. Unfortunately, it worked because then I was addicted to it and couldn't start eating again. And, but I stopped getting beaten up, so whatever. What did food in this time, what did food look like to you? It was just the enemy. I just hated the look of it, the smell of it. I couldn't, if anyone talked about it, I'd leave the room. It was in the same, it was in the same genre as telephones. I just, uh, during that period, didn't have a telephone. If a telephone rang, if I was in a building and a telephone rang, I'd literally get up and quickly and gently move away from the building because I didn't want to hear the telephone ring because it scared me. Maybe someone was going to ask me to go on tour. What made you decide to speak out about such a personal thing? It's um, I don't think there was any really key moment that made me want to speak out about it. I think it just became apparent to most people when they read the lyrics to Anna's songs. Mm -hmm. so I felt it wouldn't be right to, you know, make an album full of personal expression and integrity and then try and hide what the song was about. So mm -hmm. I just felt it might help people and if there's any way that you can contribute to, to helping people when right. you're in a 
relatively high profile position, I think it's a good thing to take advantage of it in that way. I've always just written songs according to how I felt. I just wrote exactly what I felt. I've never really compromised any of my integrity for the sake of not being so targeted by a certain group of people. So that song, I was kind of warned by people that, you know, this could be a mistake lyrically, but I've never really compromised and I'm not prepared to do it on this song either. And I think it'll help people more than people realise. Basically got great songs and finished the record and we were you know, pulling down the studio, in other words, packing things up, putting the mics away, yeah. and were um, due to go to come, uh, come over to L.A. to mix the record. Um, and John Watson uh, was, I don't know, I guess he had an inkling that there was another song. Uh, and yeah. he sat Daniel down and he said, listen, Daniel, before we pack everything up, are you sure we haven't got? Because <laughs> this had been going on for a while, you know. Yeah. Like, don't you have? Do you have any more songs? Because Daniel basically ended up presenting the songs that we recorded, and that was it. Right? He didn't ever play anybody any yeah. others, and we all thought that's all he's got, and it was fine because it was an, an album's worth. Um, but yeah, Watson. I remember we went out to the studio. Was, was sitting. I think Daniel's maybe sitting on the floor, uh, as he often did. And, and yeah, Watson said, yeah, are you sure you don't have another song? And he goes, uh, you know, Daniel's being cheeky about it. Well, what do you reckon we need another song? And he's like, well, you know what I mean, Daniel. Do you, okay, do you have, <laughs> you know, like it's a great record. We've, we've got, we've got a couple of songs that, that, that can be singles, but do you have, that, you know, that killer single. And he says, oh, you know, he said, uh, oh, is that what you're after? <laughs> like rolling his eyes and I'm lo- looking on very amused at this. Um, and he goes, um, oh, why didn't you say? You know, that, that's you get. <laughs> and he gets up, gets on the piano and starts playing, you know. Um, yeah. It might have been, been a guitar actually. You might have grabbed a guitar and play, and he played Anna's song and it was just like fucking hell, you know, like <laughs> it's probably one of the best songs I've ever heard in my life. Yeah. Not only melodically, but the lyrics. And of course the lyrics yeah. were all about uh, anorexia, but just, you know, when you think about this, a 17 year old, wrote those lyrics. And if you read those lyrics and bear in mind what he'd been going through with not eating and having anorexia comes up with a song where it's a love affair with, you know, you feel like the song is a girl called Anna and he loves Anna. And that's why he can't get rid of Anna. He's addicted to, to, to Anna. His love is an addiction with Anna, but Anna is anorexia. I mean, just that is mind blowing. It's just such a beautiful, uh, romantic and extraordinary, um, way of, of, of explaining his situation, you know? 
Um, and then, you know, then later on the song, there's that great bit, it, the middle section, where he yeah. anorexia your life, anorexia your life, anorexia your life, and it sounds like anorexia. And you know, yeah. it's, it's, it's genius. It's absolute genius. So he played that song, and um, it was literally, hey, Ben, don't pack your drum kit up. Just yeah, yeah. <laughs> and the assistant, I said, put put the mics back up. So we put it all up, you know, and plugged everything in again, and pushed record. And I tell you, probably got that that song within three takes. Probably maybe yeah. we did more, but it was like it came together so quickly. That song was was done by the end of the day in absolute yeah. completion of backing vocals of the whole thing. It was just yeah. imagine if you'd never, if John hadn't pushed him oh, and, and you'd already packed up and you had a, a you know a different temperament and he, you didn't want to have to set everything back up again. Absolutely. We would have lost yeah. the song. Maybe yeah, I, I don't think we would have ever heard it because I think he would have, he would have kept it to himself because it was so personal. And, and yeah. you know, the discussion did then, uh, continue to you know with what with what i mean this is one of the reason i i i i say that that john watson or as we know him watto is in my opinion one of the best managers i've ever seen is because of moments like that because he not only yeah. can, can organize things really well which is a big part of ma- managing but he also had this incredible empathy for um for daniel and all this stuff and just like um you know just uh being able just to know that he might yeah that he might have something and and then being able to say the right things to make sure daniel was comfortable doing the song because obviously it's you know the whole world didn't know well the whole of australia didn't know about the anorexia there was hints of it i think because some photos mm. came out or something like that. And it's like, well, what do you do with that? Do you, do you hide it and continue to hide it? Which of course you can, or do you just do the opposite, which is tell, make it a story, uh, tell the story and what better yeah. way of telling the story than in a song. I mean, it's, it's just fantastic. And it really helped. I really believe it helped yeah. everything because Daniel really didn't have to really do much interviewing about it. He could just, people could hear the song. And of course that song was the biggest hit of the album. Yeah. Yeah, it was. I mean, I was 15 when that album came out right. and that was like a big moment. For right. Me. Yeah. Yeah. Cause he did, he, he did one big interview in Rolling Stone over here where he, he did talk about all that stuff. Right. And apparently that that writer didn't even know that he was going to talk about that. Right. And he just sort of decided, I've written this song. Right. People are going to hear it. I'm going to tell pretty much one journalist about this. That's right. And the the story will, and and apparently it, you know, it helped a lot of people who were going through the same thing. He he knew his audience would probably Yeah, and you know what's very interesting is, you know, obviously I live out here, I've been living out here in in L.A. in America for a while, and I have a lot of friends, a lot of my friends are are friends of all ages, and I have a lot of young friends, uh, well, they'd be your age, uh, who who were teenagers at that time. And, uh, uh, you know, L.A. in particular has 
a lot of big problems with uh, anorexia. I mean, because right. because it's you know where films are made and there's lots of TV yeah. shows and modeling and you know it, if if you look good, uh, you you might have a career if you if you are in LA because people spot you and then the next thing you know you're on a TV show. So so that is definitely something that's in the air here. So. You know, a lot of uh, teenagers would deliberately not eat to make themselves thinner for for all the wrong reasons. Yeah. You know, and I, I have I have met so many people in probably in their I guess thirties who said, "Oh, you know, I just realized you worked with Silverchair. Um, they were my favorite yeah. band when I was a teenager." and that song Anna, it it, it 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 it's it changed everything for me because I realised there are other people out there with with anorexia and it's 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 yeah absolutely a, a phenomenally important song because it's it's so beautiful it's so beautifully yeah. worded. So here's Anna's song bracket open fire bracket by Silverchair. I'm going to start with a live version from 2007 so you all can hear how good a singer Daniel is then most of the song so you can hear the lyrics after hearing Daniel and Nick chatting about them. Is it weird that I love crowd singing but hate organised choirs? For as long as Yeah. 
Thank you so much for listening if you made it this far. This one should have been a double episode. It's so long, but I never know how long they are until I sit down and do the editing. And I do enjoy a long podcast, so I thought I'd test the waters and see if anyone makes it to the end. Please subscribe, share, rate and review the podcast if you're enjoying it. And if you're an Instagram or Facebook person, you can follow the podcast, A Rock and Roll Rabbit Hole Podcast. I post some vinyl, guitar, vintage merch, pedal porn and a whole heap of other crap. Thanks again to Rob Dean at Fear Does Not Exist In This Studio Studios for the silly podcast songs and Paddy Cummings at Fingerprint Audio for ongoing tech and web assistance. And as mentioned at the start, if you do think I could do something better or got something wrong in this free podcast that took me a whole week to put together, please send me a grammatically correct email at I'm so sick of saying the word bracket at hotmail.fuck and I'll get back to you immediately. But seriously, if you do want to say hi, hit me up on Instagram or Facebook or the abuse tab on the website, arockandrollrabbithole.com. The website also has Spotify playlist of the songs used in every episode, all past episodes, and the bonus episodes are now up there too. Speaking of hitting me up on Instagram, early days of the podcast, a dude in England liked a few posts and I checked out his Instagram feed and he had some amazing photography up there. And it turns out that Damo Fawkes, apart from being a professional maker of custom knobs for kitchen doors, sorry mate, I couldn't resist, is also a great non-soloing bass player who played in a great band from Yorkshire in the UK called Group Dog Drill. And if you listen regularly, you know I like to end the podcast with a band that falls under the week's topic. And these guys ridiculously qualify as the song is titled Bracket That Bracket Texico Bracket Feeling Bracket. You cannot be serious! And as a hint, the first second of this song qualifies for next week's episode. Check out the Victims tab on my website for some more nuggets from Group Dog Drill. I've been listening to these guys all week and they've got some really good tunes. And here they are with their double bracketed rocker, that Texaco feeling. Thanks again, guys, for hanging in there this week. See ya.